Hello, everybody. It is another edition of Observations. This is Rob Liefeld. I am hanging with you once again. My pleasure to come share comic book history talk. Uh, this journey I have been on my whole life. Comics were just inevitable for me in every possible way, shape, and form. And uh, on Observations, we are dissecting comic books of an era as they... Uh, move into uh, another era and eventually we'll find ourselves in the present day and we'll be uh, just experiencing all of the uh, influences that happened over the course of my lifetime, some of which I have shared with you guys, I, I think are impacting the culture right now. And there are no two bigger projects than the two that we are going to discuss tonight. These were the two, the Twin Peaks, the Giant Towers, that we could never not uh, confront head on. And tonight we are going to attempt to scale them. And I am not going to scale this alone. Joining me on my uh, journey, on our journey, as we uh, examine the impact and the influence, the evolution of both Alan Moore's Watchmen and Frank Miller's Dark Knight is none other than my my buddy, comic book conventioneer, retailer, all around uh, brainchild of comics, Jimmy J. We welcome Jimmy J. back to the show. Jimmy, what's up, buddy? Hey, I'm stoked to be back. Uh, I've been subscribing to your observations now for the last few weeks, and I mean, I've been digging it, man. I've been digging the uh, the comic talk, and I'm glad to be a part of the show once again. So, hey, Jimmy, um, we had such a good we had such a good time, and yeah, look, everybody should just know Jimmy and I. Like I said, we've been doing this together for plus twenty years. Jimmy has a great crack comic book mind he makes his living from comics as i do it, it and you know what you you, you got to be insane uh to 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 really make your living in comic books both of us uh that th there is uh it, it's an obsession uh comics retail is is a is a refined art form it is literally half the time it's playing the ponies because comic books shift and change on a dime and today we are going to talk about two comic books that shifted an entire industry on, on a dime, I mean, honestly, both of these books were earthquakes that I don't think anybody quite understood what they would represent, how they would impact the culture, how they would impact the art form. And Jimmy and I have have, have discussed these for years, because, and we'll, we'll, we'll be discussing Watchmen and, and, and Dark Knight for years to come because of the tremendous impact. These were the twin meteors that hit... The same year, the same exact year. Jimmy, uh, do you remember uh, encountering these books as a kid? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, actually, these were uh, the two big tent poles that when I came in and became a weekly warrior into comic books and going, you know, riding my bike down to the comic book store, these were the two books that were just dominating every fanboy conversation that was happening inside. Uh, inside the uh, at Passport Comics in 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 Van Nuys, um, so I'd ride my bike down there, and people would immediately ask, "Hey, are you a Watchmen guy or are you a Dark Knight guy?" And you know, I was just jumping into it, so um, I didn't know which one I was. So it took me. They didn't have any back issues of Watchmen, so I I was late coming to the game. I was later coming to the game on that. Um, I bought the very first trade paperback right when it came out, um, and 
on Dark Knight, though, I was able to track those issues down and I poured over those over and over and over again. So those were the, I mean, that was the discussion. That was the thing that dominated uh, my my early my early days going to a comic book so store you on were a regular comics, basis. You were buying comics in 1986. Correct. That's when I became a regular junkie. I mean, there was times that, you know, I hit up the spinner rack or I took a break from collecting baseball cards to get into comics. But by 85, 86, I was, I was full-blown going to the comic book store at least once a week. So that was my, so that was my fun. And, but, um, you know, at the time, it's not like that. I had a, you know, a huge, you know, huge knowledge of, of, of creators. It's just, Hey, I, I flipped through, you know, what I liked, you know, I picked out which covers that, you know, were cool. I asked the, you know, the clerks there, Hey, which, you know, which comics are going to be worth money, which comics are cool, uh-huh. you know? So, you know, so it's uh you know, I was definitely looking for a sensei at the time, you know, a, a guy sure. to point, you know, point me in the right direction. And, um, and they really said, man, Watchmen's so good, but you, ha- if you're not reading it from the start, don't bother. So it took me, you know, so it took me, you know, some time to track down, you know, a handful of issues. And then I finally threw in that white towel and I, and I, and I had to buy that early trade paperback. So, I mean, it was, so I, I was probably exposed more to Dark Knight first before, okay. uh, before jumping into Watchmen. So, so check this out. Cause we gotta, we gotta explain to people where, where we're going to, we're going to set the, uh, kind of paint the picture of where things were at when these books hit. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of go through, of course, we are revisiting once again, Frank Miller. He's been a dominant topic on Rob observations. He's a dominant figure in, in the, of the last 40 plus years in comics, uh, in my Rob observations, episode two, the seventies visionaries, uh, Frank is the most significant seventies visionary transitioning into the eighties and all of the things that he accomplished, on Daredevil, trans just completely transporting that book from this kind of second-rate Spider-Man, uh, it was B-level Spider-Man book, and even taking some of Spider-Man books, co-opting them so that they would become not books, characters, Spider-Man characters, co-opting them so that they would now be like Daredevil characters, like Kingpin, and introducing, as we we mentioned, the the, the Chinese, uh, Japanese, Korean, all the martial arts, the Grindhouse films, this this Eastern culture that Frank would would immediately transport into. Uh, uh, Daredevil and and all these new supporting characters. Daredevil became the epitome of grim and gritty before grim and gritty became a, you know, a phrase. And Frank, eventually, I, I think his run on Daredevil is 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 so transformative, and 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 everything that he sets out to accomplish with Elektra, and and kind of uh, some surprises he pulled along the way, and then kind of uh, pulling a rabbit out of his hat. And, and reinventing Electra before he kind of closes out his run, Frank Miller leaves uh, DC, leaves Marvel Comics to go to DC Comics. He leaves Marvel, goes to DC for this giant project that we would learn as fans is called Ronin. And the the you don't get to Dark Knight without Ronin. And and the thing with Ronin is Ronin was where he immediately flexed even more so than than he did on. Uh, on Daredevil, he flexed his Eastern influences in, in in the like in the biggest possible way, and and the thing is that uh, he mashed it up. He did a, an amazing East West uh, mashup 
where he is applying a ton of Mobius in European artists. At the same time, he is jamming it up with guys like Lone Wolf and Cubs, uh, Kazuo Koiki and uh, Goseki Kojima. Hope I did those guys justice, but we're just going to refer to them as the Lone Wolf and Cub creators. But somewhere between Lone Wolf and Cub and uh, everything Mobius. And Mobius, for those of you who don't know, uh, is an acclaimed European illustrator whose work in the late 70s, early 80s was uh, just blowing up all over graphic novels all over, all over the world. Um all of his graphic albums and and his uh it, it, i mean his stuff hit the graphic medium like in the biggest way possible and and he the thing about mobius also known as jean jarod beautiful name beautiful name he uh, worked in many different styles and many different uh, mediums he would have a stippling style where very much broken lines and, and, and the traditional stippling of dots on dots on dots, uh, instead of like uh, shading things in blacks, he would really push the boundaries of gradiated lines of, you know, just deepening, uh, r rendering fields that would uh, start out with one or two lines hatching over and then 10 lines crisscrossing across to each other to create a deeper field. Again, there's the stippling where he would just, with dots, I mean, literally by hand applying these dots, create shaded fields, uh, de defining faces and rendering. Uh, he's, above all things, he's a master storyteller. His, uh, his work. Yeah, I would even say he would also do like a, like a complete minimalist style, like where it would be complete line economy, where, you know, he could do, you know, with great storytelling, he could just do with few lines, you know, you know, shapes and, and, and gestures and, and things like that. So, no, this is, yeah, I mean, this guy had all around all game. He would also paint. He would also paint his notable works, Blueberry, The In Cow. These are giant works, and they were known to Western artists. But Frank hits with Ronin, which is this sci-fi, uh, kind of sci-fi steampunk West meets East. And we're not going to do a deep dive into Ronin tonight, but you need to. We 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 need to give it the the nod that it deserves because when he did it, DC. And Dick Giordano, who I mentioned many times, the executive editor at that time, felt that he had caught the biggest fish. And the big fish here was going to deliver for him a brand new project for DC called Ronin. And Ronin got tons of ads. Jimmy, Ronin was like, the buildup to Ronin was severe. And it is no uh, secret to anyone that Ronin was not a sales success. It is, it is, uh, th there is no amount of spin. It was the first time Frank had kind of uh, not uh, uh, delivered this high sales quality item. It was like it was a higher um, higher price point, uh, a, a, a thicker formatted book, heavier stock paper, but not where we would go with Dark Knight. But, um, you know, it, it, no, it and what I remember about that is is uh, when I started going to the San Diego Comic-Con, that was uh, that was summer 1986. It's like every retailer had like the stack of, of, you know, Ronin half cover price, you know, issue number one, issue number two, issue number three. So, I mean, it's like, I know that was in the direct market, you know, I mean, again, you know, they were banking on success, the success of Daredevil, 
and Ronan, you know, didn't deliver in that area. Like, uh, you know, like, you know, I'm sure that a lot of people had hoped. I believe Ronan was ahead of its time by like 20 years, way ahead of its time. And, and, and just, it's important for everybody to understand when you dig through Ronan, it is a masterful work. It is my favorite. Yep. I'm telling you right now, it's my favorite Frank Miller job. It's the one I've poured over the most over the years. Everything that I'm telling you that Mobius and the Lone Wolf and Cub guys did and, and countless other, I mean, I, we don't know what Frank was inhaling in terms of artistic, um, influences, but Ronan is, has the exact same cross hatching, uh, what I'm speaking of with, uh, with, 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 with Mobius and the stuff that you were seeing in these, uh, manga that Lone Wolf and Cub and, and what you would later see in like Akira, um, he is doing this really, especially if you look at the actual printed pages, an incredible amount of rendering, stippling. It's, it's totally different than what he did on, on, on Daredevil. It is an, it is a different approach. And most importantly, he inks the whole job himself. It's the first completely pencil and ink job by Frank Miller. There is no Klaus Janssen applying finishes here. It is a bold work. It is an innovative work. It is a work we were going to dive into some other time, but Ronan comes and goes in 1983 and 1984. It is the immediate follow-up. If you, if you're a Frank Miller, uh, uh, just obsessor like I was, you bought it and you admired it for the art form that it was. And, and it really was Frank Miller's art film. It was his art film. He'd earned it. Daredevil went from last to top selling book in the industry. This guy earned it. I think DC wanted more of a commercial hit and they would get it uh, in the follow-up after Frank, uh, after Ronan doesn't quite stick the landing sales wise. This is not a criticism. This is a 100% fact. Uh, DC will even talk that basically they gave Frank everything he wanted in terms of do this art form where you're do, doing all these European and Eastern artists, all these influences, and this kind of, it, it's classified as a cyberpunk's samurai novel. So it's it's wild. It's way ahead of its time. It deserves a deep dive of its own. But I believe Dick Giordano said, sure, do that because I want this other thing out of you. And, and, and it's no different than uh, in the film industry, for the longest time, okay, summer of 90, is it 94, 93, Jurassic Park, Steven Spielberg makes Jurassic, uh, makes Jurassic Park, giant worldwide global pop blockbuster, and, at this, and then after that, says I want to do this art film called Schindler's List, that there's no guarantee it's going to be a giant success other than it's made by S Steven Spielberg, and it rockets. And Steven kind of follows this path the rest of his life. Uh, you know, for for every Saving Private Ryan, he will give you an arty, uh, you know, uh, AI. Let's, you know. Right. Uh, that in, That's very much also like a Robert Redford approach. Like, you know, hey, I'll do I'll do one for me and I'll do one for you. Studio eyes. I'll do my art house in, you know, my Sundance type flick. And now, I'm, you know, now I'm going to do my studio, big flashy studio movie. So, um, I mean, but I think Spielberg is, is, is the best example, you know, of yeah, that. And, so. and, and, and make no doubt, uh, Frank Miller is, is already at a Steven Spielberg kind of level when he, when, 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 when Frank Miller crosses the street, it's a big deal. Crossing the street to DC is a big deal. He was a Marvel darling. And as we covered earlier, George Perez 
had left early on. So now you got Frank Miller crossing the street and he does this very artsy film. Uh, again, Spielberg in, in, in 2005 gave us War of the Worlds, huge summer giant blockbuster, Tom Cruise, biggest Tom Cruise opening, biggest Steven Spielberg opening, and then follows that up with Munich, which was a very kind of more art, artsy film for Spielberg. It has a lot of really ambitious, artful, uh, more serious subject matter, not exactly commercial pop. So Frank Miller does his arty, ambitious sci-fi um, saga and then transitions, and we get the announcement that he is going to do this brand new take on Batman called The Dark Knight Returns. And I'm going to stop it right there because we're going to go back and now we're going to do a little, you know, canvassing of Alan Moore, who, while Frank was strutting on Daredevil, Alan Moore had transitioned from being a sensation of British comics with Captain Britain and all these other comics that he was doing in the, the, the 2000 AD magazine. And he was, you know, making his way over there. DC took a flyer on him. They gave him Swamp Thing and Swamp Thing was a radical just transformation of the character who had always traditionally been this guy that had this, you know, uh, uh, transformed in a, in a lab accident in the swamp, became a swamp thing. I've covered this before. There was man thing. There was swamp thing. There was the heap. The heap comes first. Swamp thing comes second. Man thing comes last. But Alan, we're not going to do the deep dive in the swamp thing. He mystifies the character, gives it a, like, a hundred more layers that no one saw coming. Everybody goes crazy. And were you in any way on board the Swamp Thing? On Swamp Thing, uh, like probably probably during the Watchmen era, I remember being able, and I had a huge stack, a huge stack of back issues I found for a buck. And man, you know, I bought them at a swap meet and I poured over them. It was all those early John Constantine. I mean, it's very gothic horror um, and it was so unlike anything that I ever read before in, in a Marvel comic. And I mean, it was, it was dark. I mean, it was trippy. I mean, like he had fruit growing out of his back and, and hippies were stealing it to, you know, to get like an LSD rush. I mean, it, it, it blew my mind, uh, but it was super cool and it was dark and I never, and I was always kind of afraid, afraid of it. I mean, and that's what that Alan Warm swamp thing run was to me was was a very scary run i mean you know you had you know ghosts of 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 plantation slaves you know in it you know like haunting the readers and i mean it was really dark and but i ate it up i ate it up so um you know so i i was definitely into that and so i mean again i was like just give me this full course of watchmen and i know i'm jumping ahead no 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 look look the, we people need to know alan moore hit the scene um, again, in this tremendous fashion, and uh, Swamp Thing was was a, a Swamp Thing was a huge buzz book. It, it Swamp Thing was a book that was probably um, near cancellation, not really catching fire. And then he comes on, and and his vision, his ideas make Swamp Thing, you know, this big, huge deal and, and again over overseas he had he had done judge dread he had done some doctor who's he had done mar work for marvel uk but here comes miracle man the the miracle man is 
I think, what kicked down all the doors for him overseas. And is this very, it's a precursor to Watchmen in that it is a dark version of Shazam. There is no in, ifs, buts. It is a guy who becomes another guy. And in, in, in his story, it's like the wife only wants to be in a relationship with Captain Marvel. Now, she doesn't want Billy Batson. And there's a kid Marvel man. So th- this is, again, Alan is is just strutting and killing it. And DC is obviously so invested in him that they offer over to him the Charlton comic book characters. Now, Charlton was a, uh, uh, a comic book company that had not had a ton of success in recent years. In the 60s, early 70s, Charlton was a powerhouse, uh, a bunch of recognizable characters, Captain Adam, The Question, Blue Beetle, Peacemaker, Midnight, the whole, the whole you know, they had an entire array uh, of, of characters that people dug. They give these characters to Alan. Alan wants these characters. And so these and and, and DC DC acquires this this Charlton catalog. Yes, they thank you. They 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 acquire the catalog. They now own them. DC owns them. There's no license. They have now absorbed Charlton. They have made the transaction. Those characters are their characters. And in the absolute watchmen, the absolute edition books are the giant, handsome, oversized. Uh, hardcover books that DC puts in slip covers. They're also limited edition, like we've talked with Jimmy about omnibuses. And in the Watchmen Absolute Edition, they have all of Alan's notes when he literally wrote notes for Captain Adam and The Question and Blue Beetle. The entirety of Watchmen was, and the opening chapter was, who killed the peacemaker instead of who killed the comedian. And so he was completely invested in transforming, as he had done, with Marvel Man, who had been a kind of a goofy Captain Marvel knockoff in England, in in in, in the UK, Alan transformed, right, so that, and, they, and that's the cap, and that's the Shazam Captain Marvel. Yes, yes. That, so that's that that's Miracle Man, Marvel Man that Alan Moore did that got everybody noticed. He's then on Swamp Thing. He transforms that into kind of this hokey thing, into this terrifying, like you said, horror mystical book that rivets everybody. So they give him. The Charlton characters, and he very much wants to do this adult version of the Charlton characters that's much, like, super dark. So, 1986, in my opinion, uh, comics are getting, are, are kind of grinding down. We have talked about a lot of the superstars, the John Burns, the George Perez, Walt Simonson. And I'm going to tell you from my perspective, as not only a fan, but I was clerking at a comic store in Southern California here in Tustin. Uh, it, it had been an offshoot of a store in Orange County, in Fullerton, Orange County. They they got a second location, opened in Tustin. I was the day-to-day clerk there. A lot of people saw me drawing on backing boards, drawing on comic books. This is um, I, I'm I'm super excited that at this point in time, in 1986, I am at the register and getting a firsthand knowledge of the retail business. Not just the fan side, but the ordering side and watching what people are buying because that's all you're doing all day long is sitting behind a cash register. So, yes, if you, in case you did not know, uh, at, when I was 18, I am working at uh, uh, a comic book store. It is now known as Tustin Tunes and Toys in Tustin, but at the time, it was an offshoot of a, comic, of a store called Comic Castle. Case in point, 
I am watching these books come in and John Byrne and George Perez and Walt Simonson and all of my favorites, Jimmy, they're tired. George has just finished Christ on, on Infinite Earths. John is transitioning over to do these Superman books because he's burned out at Marvel and he can say he had a falling out at Marvel, but honestly, he had done everything at Marvel. He had just come off a run of Hulk before he transitioned and he didn't even do, you know, but kind of nine or ten issues of the Hulk. And you can tell... Like when an artist isn't in it, I've seen bands reform and in this, in, in, I'll, I'll be real quick with this. The Eagles reformed in 1994, Hell Freezes Over tour. My wife and I, we saw them at the Irvine Amphitheater opening night. We saw their last concert in Pasadena in the Rose Bowl one year later and they were completely burned out. They did not enjoy be, being together the first night. They were electric. These guys were jamming together in front of a live audience. You can see it with bands, the most obvious they were just like, when can we finish this last set and 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 you know finish the tour and go home? All of my heroes who had been jamming hard from 1976, a decade in, are a little tired. It's just like your quarterbacks that get rust that that kind of get tired out, right? And your bat, all your all your players, your pitchers, your basketball stars, your quarterbacks. So so 1986, Marvel Comics and DC Comics. Outside of Christ on Infinite Earths, which was a very electric event, it, it, it just didn't seem like there was – DC had rebooted everything. John Byrne's going to do Superman. But, but what else? Like what else is coming? And Marvel is, is at my point – my, in my opinion, 1986, Marvel is as stagnant as they would come. And here comes Alan Moore and here comes Frank Miller. Go, getting back to Frank Miller's Dark Knight. Frank Miller's Dark Knight is the reimagination of – Batman. Now, full stop, Batman was not the Batman that you understand today. Not the Batman that Jimmy J is selling tons of copies every week. Batman was losing titles in this period of time. Batman was not a top-selling book for DC Comics. That was the domain of the Teen Titans, of the Legion of Superheroes, of miniseries like Camelot 3000, that, that of Swamp Thing, okay? Those were the buzz books. Batman at one point at his heyday in the 70s and in early 80s was in a book called World's Finest. He was a co-star with Superman. He was in a book called Brave and the Bold where a different character would star alongside Batman every month. He then had Detective Comics and Batman Comics as his other two books. So Batman was in a minimum oh, was minimal. Then he also had then he also had Batman and the Outsiders. No 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 Jimmy, Brave and the Bold gets canceled to make way for Batman and the Outsiders, which loses okay. Batman not very, which loses Batman early on to just become the Outsiders. So Brave and the Bold, they announced Brave and the Bold is, is canceling because Titans and Legion are so hot. Well, why not give Batman a dedicated team? So, so Brave and the Bold goes away. World's Finest goes away. And then there's Batman and the Outsiders where he's now not the, you know, he, he's, he's the marquee, but the Outsiders is the much bigger logo. It's not Batman and the Outsiders. It's Batman and the Outsiders. And eventually, like I said, they just become the outsiders and lose Batman all altogether. But World's Finest is gone. Brave and the Bold is gone. These Batman's gone from four titles to two titles. And I'm telling you that the interest is just not – he is not a character that has the imagination of kids like me. Older fans are still digging on Batman, but the new fans have are going in different direction. Again, it's the age of the X-Men which created the Titans, which created the heat on the new version of the Legion, all this stuff. This is stuff you got to know because every comic uh, 
is of its time. Jimmy and I talk about this all the time. Comics are of a time. What happens is of a time. And we, we told you that these two books turn comic books on a diamond. We've spent the last bit of time kind of setting up where all this is going. Dark Knight, uh, 10 years. The, the, the slug line for Dark Knight is it's been 10 years since anybody's seen the Batman. Right, Jimmy? It's been 10 years. He's yeah, been gone. Absolutely. It, and it's like... It, it's it started out as you know he's in he's in retirement i mean we haven't seen him and i mean i think that's that's pretty apropos because it's like batman wasn't cool i mean and that's just i mean and it's hard to imagine a world that batman isn't cool because batman is used right now as the sales index meaning if books sell above or underneath batman that is used as the baseline to you know for the charts and things like that and so, and it has been, you know, since the, since the late eighties, basically post dark night. And, um, and, and during this time, I mean, I remember there was a, there was a foreword on the anniversary issue of Batman 400. And we talked about this in the past, uh, you and me, but for the observations, yes, yes. Share for, this. for the observations crowd is, uh, is Stephen King did this, did this, uh, um, introduction and I remember I was really excited to buy Batman 400 because I could, you know, show mom and dad, hey, look, you know, best-selling author is, is is writing about Batman. He must love Batman, so Batman must be cool. So, but I'm reading this, and there's and and Stephen King was so excited that Batman reached this milestone milestone 400th issue, when quite frankly he thought that Batman would be canceled. And he makes note of all these other titles getting canceled. And maybe Batman isn't a thing for the time, but he really thinks it is. He really thinks it's a timeless concept because of the logo and because he's a, a character of the night and, 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 and so forth. And he goes on and on about his love of the character. But, I mean, in that, in that introduction, he really hits home that, that uh, it's not a foregone conclusion that, that Batman's going to be around forever. So he very much waxes nostalgically, and this is around the same time of Dark Knight coming out. No, the great thing, and really what people need to understand here, this, this is Stephen King, guys. Stephen King, 1986. I'm working at the comic book store when this Batman comic that Jimmy's talking about comes out. And Stephen King does this two-page. It's a very deep dive into his affections for Batman. And he is talking about how he literally talks about how Frank Miller saved. He, he mentions Dark Knight. And he says, Frank Miller saved Dark Knight for what I believed was an, an uh, inevitable extinction. And what the thing that really sent shutters down my, my, my spine when I read it is, he's like, I used to go to the newsstand and I used to pick up books, comic books featuring Flash Gordon and the Spectre and uh, Lone Ranger and Tarzan. And he goes, those aren't on the stands anymore. They ran their course and suddenly they weren't available. And Stephen King said... And he and, and again, I so when I'm telling you that Batman was losing titles, it was evident. No more Brave and the Bold. Brave and the Bold was like a staple in my childhood. It was a big book. Um, and 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 World's Finest was a staple of my childhood. You always had Superman and Batman and Adventure together. Gone, gone. Like I said, Batman and the Outsiders was kind of like, well, hell, let, let, let's reboot Batman with a with a team of six cool new superheroes. And it was definitely meant to launch a new another new teen titans type style book now how is batman depicted in this time this is very important because what frank miller does in dark knight is so visual as well as conceptual 
Batman is depicted from the Neil Adams era on through Dark Knight as a lean kind of, you would imagine he's 6'3", 6'4", lean, athletic build. Jim Apero was a dedicated, dedicated, some some people's favorite Batman artist, and, and, and with good reason, Jim logged so many miles on Batman. He was the dedicated Brave and the Bold artist. He would become the Batman and the Outsiders transition artist. Uh, he did all sorts of different Batman family, Batman tales. He, he, Neil Adams, Irv Novick, uh, everybody who depicted Batman in this time depicted him as more of a slender, build, uh, lean, athletic guy. Okay, this is this, and 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 his uh, his his bat bat face mask. His I don't want to call it a helmet, but his 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 cowl had long ears. The long ears were kind of a, a staple. Some people drew them super long. Some people drew them medium long, but they had never been blunt in these just kind of short little kind of devil horns that they would be depicted as in the Frank Miller uh, version. And and look, in short, uh, with the storyline, as, as I've discussed with Jimmy, where it's 10 years later and Batman is retired, and we learned that Batman is retired because of a tragedy surrounding Dick Grayson Robin. Um, the obvious, uh, uh, inspiration for Frank, for Alfred, he's talked about it as, uh, the, the, the actor who portrayed Alfred, uh, who portrayed, um, uh, Dudley Moore's butler in, uh, Arthur, Arthur giant. I think it was Sir John Gielgud, if I'm correct, uh, is, is the, uh, the guy who, uh, who, who portrayed, um, Alfred's butler, I mean, uh, uh, D- uh, Dudley Morris slash Arthur's butler, he would then uh, be the inspiration for Frank Miller's Alfred and and kind of a crusty uh, 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 side voice, um, maybe a, a little very dry, just very dry, dry. humor. That's you know, it. And it would bar back and forth with with uh, with, you know, you know, as dark as Batman is. It's it's Alfred with you know pokes all the the fun lines and, you know, back and at for, and for people who aren't aware in 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 Frank Miller's Dark Knight it's the first time that Alfred had been mentioned and or depicted as the butler slash uh, kind of ward or the man who helped raise Bruce Wayne from the death of his parents Martha and 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 uh, is it. Jo- Jonathan Thomas, Wayne, Thomas, Thomas. Wayne, Thomas Wayne and Martha Wayne, uh, got to say Martha, um, <laughs> Alfred then raised Bruce and that was depicted here for the first time. So Frank is already kind of starting to throw tethers back, uh, and, 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 and alter the, the origin. He's, he's already altering the, the trajectory of Batman, but now he's altering and adding to some of the past histories. But here's the deal. Bruce Wayne is grizzled. Wrinkly, receding hairline, uh, thicker, square jaw, much more stout figure, which would translate to a very stout uh, Batman. I mean, wasn't it obvious to the naked eye, Jimmy? Batman was physically. Oh, no, he's he's like different. he's this like old beefcake, you know, guy. I mean, he's he's huge. I mean, and again, 
when I was at the, I would ride my bike, the Huffy down to the local comic book store. The people who were really into it, were really into it. Then there's other people that were saying, hey, when did Batman become the Hulk? Because right. it's like he was huge. He was physically it, it, huge. It was a, it was a, a, like a jarring visual when you encountered it, but not jarring in a, hey, this repulses me. It was a, it was a jarring in a, hey, this is pretty great. And uh, as you're saying, he's very thick. He's very stout. I mean, I, Frank arguably put 50 pounds on him. I mean, I, I think that's minimally 50 pounds on Bruce Wayne. And uh, and dark and 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 when he becomes Batman again, he is thick, and he is raw, and also it's totally a departure from how Frank had depicted Daredevil, who was lean, the athletic build that I said Jim Aparo and others depicted Batman as for so long. He now is not doing this lean, athletic gymnast build. He has abandoned that, and there's also a bit of a caricature going on in Frank's work. On Dark Knight, there's so the TV screens, the layouts. This would become one of the biggest influences from Dark Knight is the way Frank tells his pages and 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 has this new storytelling style. In the same way that he had a storytelling style in a drastic change on Ronan from Daredevil. Now it's a different change, but I'm telling you right now, the guy who does not get enough credit for influencing Frank and Frank is Frank is a sponge. Frank is a sponge. He was clearly enamored by the work of another peer who had been rocking the house on the indie scene called Howard Chaikin, named Howard Chaikin, and his book was called American Flag. And, and American Flag was the first comic to integrate, again, some of these European influences. Frank, uh, uh, Howard Chaikin was also uh, applying some Mobius, some European influences, but he had these TV screens, People always reporters with mics, talking through TV screens and using the TV screen as the narrator. And look, it was very reflective of our obsession with news media at the time. But when you see it in Dark Knight, know that it was an, a direct, directly influenced by the groundbreaking work that Howard Chaikin did on American Flag. And we will definitely be doing deep dives into American Flag as part of the giant indie scene that happened in the 80s. But Frank is putting together an all-new array of influences now. More importantly, Klaus Janssen is back, finishing Frank uh, in the uh, more so in these early issues of Dark Knight. But the bottom line is, what gets Bruce Wayne back into the uh, what gets Bruce Wayne back into the into the Batman um, uh, uh, costume is there's a jailbreak, right, Jimmy? Two faces out. And he's and out. Correct. He, it's now he needs to clean up basically all of the old villains. And so yeah, so it starts off. It starts off with Harvey Dent. Is uh, he becomes Two Face again? He they thought he was cured, but he wasn't. And he goes on and and commits a bunch of terrorist acts in uh, in Gotham City. So of so, course, Batman needs to gear up to stop the menace that that he thought took he took care of years back. So it should be noted um, for everybody is from my personal perspective. I was not a Batman fan. I, 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 when I talk about these staples, I notice them, but I was not someone who was buying World's Finest on any sort of regular basis. I did not buy the Batman comic. I did not buy Detective Comics. The only comic book of Batman that I bought with any regularity was Brave and the Bold because I loved Jim Aparo's artwork, and I loved seeing Batman team up with all the different heroes in the Marvel in the. In the <laughs> 
in the DC universe from month to month, whether it was Adam Strange, the Metal Men, the Titans, Hawkman, uh, Wildcat. There was a character, he's a, he's a Justice Society member called Wildcat. Aquaman, it was always great seeing Batman put outside of his kind of normal detective persona. And in the DC comics prior to Dark Knight, he was very much a detective in the in, in Detective Comics and in Batman that the way those books looked and appeared and what they were doing when Dark Knight hit, I think Batman is investigating something in Russia, something Moscow KGB related. He's being in, he's being uh, a, a, a detective. And the guy who was the guys who were doing the book at the time were really leaning into, you know, Bruce Wayne slash Batman has these amazing Sherlock Holmes detective skills. None of that. Right. And, and and it was very much like, hey, can you solve the can you solve the mystery before Batman does? That's it. I mean, that was yeah. very much the the vibe of these books. And um and and so so you've got uh the the none of that is on display in Dark Knight. Dark Knight is is violent, it's gritty. It definitely shows a much more violent side of Batman in the first issue. He's got rifles and and the cool thing that Frank does right off the bat, and it must have been something like he's like, I'm going to whip this out. This is a, for, a, a, a an early trick. Is we learn that Batman put the bat signal right square on his chest, so that's where you would shoot him, right, Jimmy? Right, that's um, a target. It's and, a you know it's a yes, target to to get shot at. It's supposed to draw your aim, and it's obviously heavily armored underneath Kevlar all these additional, you know, padding so that the bullets are not going to harm him in any way. But it's, 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 it's the first nod that Frank is going to build out the legend here, change it. Um, he, 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 he scoffs at the notion that you would be foolish enough to shoot at him in the chest where he's immediately directing to sh for you to shoot, uh, because he's smarter than you and, He's drawing you into his trap, which is definitely take me out here because it's heavily guarded. It's not going to uh, affect me. And, and this is a big reveal on a big giant splash page, which also has Batman running around with a giant rifle, which, again, is is a first. This is not how Batman was traditionally. Uh, and and what I do think what I do think is interesting is that that Frank Miller depicts him as this like master tactician more than like yes. a detective. He's just, like, he, you know, he's. He's the he's the old wily vet, you know, uh, you, you know, like, you know, you talk about that in sports like, oh, you know, he's got you know, that wily veteran. And so he's like, smart, you know, he in so much about Dark Knight is he tactically beats his opponents. He physically can't necessarily match people toe to toe anymore. So it's like he has to outthink them, out scheme them. And it's very much like, I mean, he revisits this, you know, in the in in a lot of his other work, I mean, 300 is about, you know, you know, being a master tactician. So, I mean, this has become a very yes. much of a staple of Frank Miller. And, and get, and, and leaning into the, the violent aspect that Frank introduces. And I cannot explain, ex express to you guys enough. Jimmy and I are alive in 1986 buying these books. We are experiencing this firsthand. We are not Wikipediaing this. We are not, we are not hearing from other people. These are books that Jimmy and I, as he said, on his bike, on his Huffy bike, riding to the store and becoming part of the conversation. Let me tell you, Dark Knight was a jolt of electricity. It it woke everybody up because no one had seen Batman handled. And again, we have to stress, Batman was, if there was a, a graph and a chart 
Batman was trending down. So, so Frank doing Batman was him rising to the occasion saying, hey man, I can radically change people's perception of Batman. And on page 23 of the first issue of Dark Knight, I'm holding right here. So who is the most popular character in comics at this time is Wolverine. Frank has even done a acclaimed four-issue miniseries that was a monster success bestseller. So he understands Wolverine having done these four huge selling Wolverine comics. In page 12, 23, what does the silhouette of Batman whips out his hand and it's in silhouette. He has four of these jagged batarangs. And we all know the batarang from the, the, the Batman Adam West show through the cartoons. It's supposed to hit you and donk and knock you. On the cartoons, it would donk you on the head, hit you in the gut, drop you to the floor. Frank is portraying them as four claws here. And he attacks, throws them into these, you know, the opposition. And they are ka-chunk, 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 piercing the skin, hanging out of this guy's forearm. So, I mean, he is upping the ante in regards to how violent and 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 brutal and physical that batman can be also batman is now stalked by this girl carrie kelly who is going to become the new robin she is part of the advertising and getting us excited they definitely showed you that batman had a female robin in this future tale if we haven't been clear this is a future tale like i said batman has not been seen for 10 years now we're going to pivot but the most important thing is so i'm not a batman fan but I eat this up because I'm a Frank Miller fan. Frank Miller's doing Batman. I'm there. I, I, I bought Ronan. I was, I was dedicated. If Frank was doing it, I was doing it. But Frank now, I think everyone felt this is natural. From Daredevil to Batman is the transition everybody wanted to make. You know, these non-superpowered. Uh, I mean, I, I, he has the extra senses. But otherwise, Daredevil doesn't have super strength. He, he can't fly. He's, he's just a very trained combatant as is Batman and the rooftops and they're kind of protectors of their cities. So obviously Batman is the more famous, but Frank had transformed Daredevil to being more popular at Marvel than Spider-Man, number one solo character. So Dark Knight is uh, suddenly when it hits, and it's also in a square bound format, the first of its kind, which would be called the prestige format. DC was ahead of every publishing uh, company in utilizing this format, the the prestige format. You remember, Jimmy? Did, did you dig it? Did oh, you love that square bound? Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, like putting it this way, I bought a lot of books that, were, quite frankly, weren't very good in years to come because they were put into the prestige format. Because those were reserved, like after Dark Knight, it was reserved for like marquee products. You know, you know. So it's like. You know, you you followed these, but man, the coloring on the book was great. The square bound on it was great. And it felt like it physically felt different than anything else on the stands. And to me, okay, I'm trying to justify that, you know, I, you know, I fell into the camp. Oh, comic books aren't for kids, aren't just for kids, you know, slogan that DC was 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 trying to really drum up at the time of between Dark Knight and, and Watchmen. So I really fell into that and I really tried to, you know, you know, try to convince, you know, my family, try to convince, you know, people at, at school, you know, that, you know, these aren't as nerdy anymore. Okay. Which is, uh, yes. you know, which is, and, which is and, crazy, and, but I mean, uh, but it's like, they felt real. 
So, so I'm going to actually, for, for, for the, the best way to continue this path is to lean into Batman, Dark Knight 2, because this, once again, furthers this violent, and, 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 and it's not, Rob and Jimmy aren't getting turned on by the violence here. We're not imagining this. This is purposeful. This is what Frank is, uh, is feeding us. And there is a, a gang that is, that is rising in Gotham called the Sons of the Bat. And they well, see. well, actually, there's there's the mutants. So it's kind of funny that Batman is is beating up the leader of the mutants. So I mean, it's kind of funny that's a, it, to me it seemed like a poke at at Marvel at the time by going, you know, Batman could beat the crap out of the mutants. He um, has in, at least that's, at least so, that's so how so he's battling these 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 uh, this gang of of that, that is growing that is that is basically making kind of vigilante acts. Uh, in his name, they're 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 inspired okay. by 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 Batman. Gotcha, gotcha. The sons of Bat. They have the, with the the face paint. He's and they're led by this mutant. But this second issue uh, goes more into the toys of Batman, and and I I can speak for I think the centerpiece of and the wow of this issue. Again, we open with in in the second issue with the media. Batman is back. He has returned after ten years. He's back on the scene. They are they are covering this. They are covering his influence, um, and 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 so to deal with these uh, this this mutant gang and this uprising of crime, we are introduced to the Batmobile. And and in no com, we keep always when these new book com- movies get greenlit, it's hey man, we're gonna look at the Batmobile, the new Batmobile. Trust me, none of them have yet depicted on any scale level of scale. The 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 it is a super tank. It it as I'm looking at it now in every single depiction, it is about a two story uh, giant. It's a it's a double wheeled tractor on both sides, and it is a giant like mega tank. It, it, it looks like the 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 size and equivalence of maybe two two and a half tanks piled on each other it shows up with these giant treads this giant elevation i mean this is like a giant gi joe uh you know vehicle with this giant cannon and he is running over these this mutant gang and he is blasting them and and it shows him at the helm with all these different controls um navigating the gun turrets and just blowing these guys away up until he jumps out battles the mutant um who has filed his teeth down to be like razors again, super violent. I mean, Batman talks about how his teeth are filed down by razors and they have a very violent battle where Batman breaks arms, breaks legs. And oh, he talks uh, about his ribs moving, you know, like he can't, you know, he, you know, he doesn't have long to, to breathe, you know, I mean, he does a really like, I mean, very, okay. You've made references to, you know, to filmmakers. I mean, but it feels very, uh, you know, very um, uh, the De Niro boxing movie, very Raging Bull, yes. you know, in in how much damage he's taking. You know, so it's not just like a, like Bravo, you know, like, uh, you know, like where he's, you know, where where he's like Superman or, or something, you know, like like getting the bad guys. It's like he's taking as much as he's dishing out. And I mean, they really do give this play-by-play of this old guy getting beat up, and why is he doing this night after night? And and so it ends. 
he's so beaten up by the first encounter with these this mutant guy that he's, you know, all in bandages. Carrie Kelly, the new Robin, nurses him back. Fast forward, they have a rematch. It, it appears that he snaps this guy's neck, ends his life. This is ultra-violent. And now all these mutants put Batman tattoos on their face and announce to the media that they are indeed the sons of the Bat. They're going to be basically pledging their allegiance to Batman, which is not what Batman had encountered. But the reason I wanted to run through issue two in the way that we did is... Dark Knight 1 and 2 are a certain thing. Dark Knight 1 and 2 are this Batman battling crime. It is this, he's coming out of retirement after 10 years. He is this now kind of brutal force of nature violence uh, that, 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 that Jimmy said it. It's, 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 it's Scorsese level. It's, it's Mean Streets. It's Taxi Driver. It's Raging Bull. It is, it is just super violent with this giant now technological toys. Oh, you thought you knew what a Batmobile is? Here's a giant mega tank. But issue one and two, if there was never an issue three and four, are these Batman comics, Two-Face, you know, you got a Robin, you got all this stuff. But now we got to pivot to, and, and Dark Knight came out in March of 1986. It kicks off early in the year. Watchmen arrives in June of 1986. First issue of Watchmen is a good three months later. And so by that time, because Frank is on time, I'm working at the comic store. Issue one comes out. Issue two comes out in April. Frank is cooking. Dark Knight one and two are massive monster hits. People are scooping them up. We can't rack them as fa you know, fast enough. The, the consumer demand for what Frank is doing is through the roof. Dark Knight is the most buzzed about comic, period. Alan and Moore it's going hits. to multiple and and I mean you're a clerk at the time and it was going through like multiple printings. Yes. So I mean, you it, know, like so every time it would sell out, like a new batch would ship. And 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 they I mean excitement for this was off the charts. Rolling Stone magazine, uh, major media were exclaiming it. As Jimmy said, you didn't need to tell you know, you could tell your friends comics are cool, they're not nerdy anymore. Well, Rolling Stone in 1986 is still a giant voice in the in pop culture. What they say matters. People move to the sound of their beat. Their critics uh, are are huge, hugely influential, and they have anointed Frank Miller and Dark Knight as this seminal graphic novel event. Especially the prestige format, forty plus pages an issue is helping this. But let's get to Watchmen, which is this world where superheroes have been outlawed, basically paying the price of their own abuse of authority and powers and, and, and the sins of the superheroes, uh, you know, of the past have cost them their very existence and identities. So they have basically retreated, retired, are hiding, or have become these CIA operatives slash government stooges, okay? And Watchmen is framed as a murder mystery. As we said, it was originally supposed to be the Peacemaker, Blue Beetle, Captain Atom, The Question, Midnight, and I'm forgetting somebody. But th those are the major players. And what you got was instead of Blue Beetle, you got the Owl. Instead of Captain Atom, you got Dr. Manhattan. Instead of Midnight, you got Silk Spectre. Instead of uh, Peacemaker, you got the Comedian. 
and again, whoever else I'm and Captain Adam oh, was Doctor oh, oh. Captain Adam was Doctor Manhattan. No, no, yeah, I, I, I've said that already. What I didn't say was that Ozymandias was uh, Thunderbolt. So, so Thunderbolt was Ozymandias. So anyway, we've got this murder mystery, and it's uh, it's very interesting. Rorschach is the echo of the question, and full stop. Alan Moore hands in this very adult version of these childish characters. The Charlton characters were pop. They were pop and colorful. And other than one or two times that Steve Ditko portrayed the question in such a way that the comics code was upset with Charlton, you know, they walked up to the line of violence this once. But Captain Adam, Blue Beetle, I mean, these are fun, poppy characters. Alan does this take, and again, if you read the absolute, these are all, he's writing what happens to Thunderbolt and the trajectory of Ozymandias is Thunder, Thunderbolts and Blue Beetles, literally. I think there's nothing closer than uh, the Captain Adam, Dr. Manhattan, and the Blue Beetle, uh, Owlman, you know, uh, trajectories. He He literally just flips it and changes it. And the reason that DC backs off is they inform Alan that they actually want the Charlton heroes to enter the DC comics universe proper. They want to do a question comic, a blue beetle comic, a captain Adam comic commerce will always drive these decisions. And somebody figured out that, Hey, we paid a pretty decent amount for these Charlton characters. We should give them their own books. Peacemaker got his own book. Blue beetle got his own book. The question got his own book. Captain Adam got his own book. All these promises were delivered on by DC to try and spin them off to their own commercial success. But Alan creates this world where superheroes are outlawed and we have a giant superhero mystery to unravel through Rorschach who's going to try and piece together exactly what's going on. And it really exposes what we're going to call the government stooge aspect of Watchmen, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, but it's like, I mean, it goes so far. I mean, it's like... I mean, it's like the characters have like, like sexual psychosis. I mean, like, um, you know, it's like uh, the owl. Yeah, it's like the owl. Like, like seriously, like he can't have, you know, he can't have a normal relationship unless he's thinking about like, you know, kinky villainesses, you know, in their, you know, with whips and chains in their outfits. Yes, he's and a I mean, and it's, it, I mean, it's just, it's like all these characters are just dark and demented, and they. You know, I mean, it's like they they hook up. I mean, it's very like it's very psychosexual. And again, I mean, I'm a it's dark. you know, I'm twelve I'm twelve years old, and it's like going, uh, I don't know if I should be reading this. Um, and 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 so here's where if you have been with us an hour as you have right now, stick with us. We're going long on this observation because here is where things get interesting, people. And this is why you uh, you even tune in. To, 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 to learn some new twists and turns. Uh, Frank Miller drastically changes the trajectory of Dark Knight in issues three and four. And in fact, the books start shipping later. There is a four month gap between Dark Knight three and Dark Knight four. Now, how do I know this? Because I heard about it. I worked at the store. The phone rang off the hook. Is Dark Knight in? Is Dark Knight in? Dark Knight three was already probably three weeks late. And then four was four months. Like there's a huge gap there. And I remember going to the conventions that summer and, and look, that's what 
DC would tell everybody, I know, I know, Frank's almost done, Frank's almost done. So here is a really interesting twist, and, and we, we speak of rivals in comics and how people push each other and alter each other. Now, I'm going to also give you a little background on the fact that uh, John Byrne, who I have mentioned numerous times, and I quoted, I, I, I mentioned in the rivalry episode with George Perez and John Byrne that John would take shots at George Perez in these uh, different magazines. Uh, Comics Journal was the source of a giant interview with John that I have dug up, and John takes shots at George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jim Starlin, uh, Bob Layton. He, he, he is ruthless, in, and John Byrne in 1980, giving this comics journal interview, some of the stuff I wouldn't even repeat on air. It's pretty vicious. He 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 really goes after people he doesn't like or disagrees with. Uh, he is comics darling at the time. He is the Wonder Boy. They ask him if he's influenced by anyone, and after kind of decide, kind of taking apart everybody else or other other quote unquote competitors of his, he goes, "Oh my gosh, the biggest influence on me right now is Frank Miller." I'm, he's changing the way I draw and his shading and his shadows, all his techniques I'm implementing into my work. Again, John Byrne, 1980 Comics Journal interview. He defers to and is clearly impressed by Frank Miller. He won't even, he's one of the few guys that he, outside of Jack Kirby, that John Byrne has copious amounts of praise. Now, what does John Byrne have to do with this? Okay, they establish a long-standing friendship. I'm going to tell you, 1992, Image Comics is launched. Uh, my partners and I, are like the darlings of the show. The fans have just showed up with their support. It's incredible, especially considering that at the time, Image Comics probably has maybe eight comic books out. I'm not sure Cyber Force and Savage, no, Savage Dragon and shit, but I'm not sure if Cyber Force and Shadowhawk have arrived yet. Maybe Wildcats just came on the scene. I have three issues of Youngblood, a couple issues of Brigade. Todd has maybe two or three spawns. But we are blowing up. We are, are my, this this pure class of mine, we are doing really well. There is a party, an industry function, an industry party that night, Saturday night. And me and my partners arrive, you know, not late-ish, but 9, 9.30. Party probably started at 7, 7 8 o'clock. And booming through the, the, the double doors, literally arm in arm, arm in arm, arm over shoulder, arm over shoulder, just slinging each other along. I would say they looked very chummy, laughing at each other's jokes, or Frank Miller and John Byrne. They have a serious, serious friendship developed across all these years. Okay, so that, put, that is comic bromance right there. No, and, and look, they both uh, jumped together shortly after Image to form Legend and became the spearhead, the, the guys who would um, really become the figureheads of their creator own imprint following what we did at image they announced they would be legend and uh so frank and john are are super super tight super close been through the wars developed this peer respect when i spoke to frank about doing some projects frank did some covers for me uh at extreme studios and i had one or two really long in-depth concept uh conversations with frank and he told me that it was tough for him competing with the pretty line work of John Byrne, that John Byrne was the, the, the guy whose pages people would just ooh and all over. So he had to change 
and go in a different direction with his storytelling and his grittier approach to Daredevil all on through all through Dark Knight. So it was great tapping this guy's brain, but they definitely were aware of each other, were good friends. So John Byrne and Frank Miller are absolute best buds. And 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 from from everything I've just shared with you and expressed to you, I'm I'm, I'm kind of building a pattern of John has credibility when it comes to Frank. There is no reason he does not have credibility if he's going to recall a story about something that occurred with Frank or something that influenced Frank. Yeah, he's you should believe him. They're they've been longtime buds, and this from 2010 has never been refuted by Frank. He hasn't come out in 10 years and said, "Hey, this didn't happen." And I'm going to read from the Burn Robotics Forum. It's John Burns John Burns dedicated website, and. The fans are saying, hey, John, John has made an offhanded comment in a in a in a post uh, called Alan Moore and the rights to Watchmen. That that is the name of the thread that everyone there's there's 34 pages in this thread on page 17 of this thread in 2010. They're saying, John, what are you doing? This seems like you're taking a shot here. Well, you know, clarify what you're saying about Watchmen and Frank Miller and Dark Knight and uh, his. Vague comment is Dark Knight Returns is a book that came out after Watchmen. Now, he's wrong. In 2010, when John types this, history will show Dark Knight shipped and was out three months, produced three months before uh, Watchmen hits. He says, Frank was working on Dark Knight around the same time that I was working on Man of Steel, his Superman relaunch. Jeanette was handing out, Jeanette Kahn was the publisher of DC Comics, and and I know for a fact because everyone during that period, she, she really Watchmen was her thing. She was flying to Hollywood to share issues of Watchmen with producers because she wanted a Watchmen movie. Jeanette is handing out Xeroxes of Watchmen to freelancers as the work came in. This is John Byrne speaking. What I'm about to say, John Byrne says I was unimpressed. So John Byrne is unimpressed with Watchmen. Frank changed direction halfway through Dark Knight. Dark Knight based on seeing Watchmen. That's the effect Watchmen had. It was that fast. It was that early. That's the statement that has all these people flipping out on his forums. He finally weighs back in and says right here, and, and honestly, uh, do I believe this 100%? It, it, it makes all the sense in the world as we're going to dive back into Dark Knight with three and four. John Byrne says, Dark Knight opens with a TV anchor reporting on the 10th anniversary of the last public appearance of Batman and going on to say that no one knows what happened to him, but that she hopes he's happy and sharing drinks with a friend or some equivalent. Frank goes on to read these Watchmen Xeroxes that are being handed out. And abruptly, abruptly, we find out that as in Watchmen, Dark Knight is now depicting that superheroes have been banned and Superman is a government stooge. And he says this happens at the halfway mark in Dark Knight and completely shifts the direction of the rest of the series. He said these kind, this is John Byrne, I'm reading directly from John Byrne. These kinds of shifts are not uncommon in Frank Miller's work. Most of the time they are invisible and you really need to know what was going on behind the scenes to even spot what he was doing. But at this point, it's very obvious. So this speaks to what I believe is an um, absolute shift by Frank Miller's entire vision. And I got to tell you, I, I dig it. If that's what caused it, if Alan Moore is indeed the guy that caused 
Frank to go back and go, I, I, I got to re, re, rejigger all this. Well, again, Dark Knight 3 arrives around the first issue of Watchmen 1. So, Jimmy, we are looking at the Dark Knight 3 opens now with early, very few pages in, Clark Kent, and, and, and again, Clark, Clark's beefy, a little, little older, but he's in this like, uh, they, they he he and like Bruce have been out riding, riding horses. They've been out yeah, riding yeah. horses. And, 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 and the way Frank depicts Superman even makes Bruce look more feeble and older than he has already depicted him thus far in the first two is, issues that are, that are red hot. These, these, these first two issues are red smoking hot. Um, and, uh, We've got, uh, you know, Clark is 100% threatening Bruce on behalf of Ronald Reagan, who is portray- portrayed as an absolute buffoon, uh, very cartoony, very impressionistic art by Frank. Um, I mean, Ronald Reagan is wearing a Stars and Stripes suit. But, um, you know, Clark says, these aren't the old days, Bruce. The world's got no room for vigilantes. It's got no room for you or people like you. And, uh, and, he, and he says flat out, you know, um, don't make me have to put you down. And, and my favorite thing is when, is when Bruce is like, yeah, y- y- you wish. Um, that's never going to happen. May the best man win if we, we, we go against each other. And I love Clark says, no, no, just wait right here. Hold on a second. But Ronald Reagan pages him and... Superman is off to deflect nukes from the Russians. And so we have our now what John is saying, this depiction of Superman as a government stooge. And and now that Bruce Wayne is back as Batman, he is being told you can't conduct yourself in the manner you're conducting or I, the greatest superhero of all time, am going to have to put you down. Now, that turned me on, Jimmy. This was like... This was the best, the best moment in the whole series for me. Oh, you know what? It, and it 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 shows. I mean, a clear difference in paths. You know, you have the boy. You know, you have the Boy Scout, which is, which is, uh, which is Superman, and and Bruce Wayne is the, you know, he's the he's he's the he's the cowboy. You know, you can't always trust the cowboy. He's that he's that hero in the rated R movie that you know you're not sure if you like or not. And uh, but you know, but you do because he's dangerous. And that gave that gave a, a big element of danger. I mean, it's setting up, it's setting up this this big stage, and it seems like I mean, like Frank is really at this point also absorbing all elements of pop culture. Where before it was very much Gotham City, Gotham City, Gotham City, DC Universe, and now you are getting more. You know, you know, you have the Ronald Reagan, and you, you know, you have the politics involved. You know, they cut. You know, in three and four, they cut to the astronauts. You know, a bunch, you know, which was which was really big, you know, during this era, you know, I mean, you know, NASA in the 80s. And, uh, you know, I mean, you had the Dr. Ruth, you know, you know, uh, in, in the David Letterman show. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting that he's now putting, you know, that you're you're contrasting a dangerous Batman now in a in a in a a very relevant pop culture world. And and Frank is embracing the Cold War that defined the mid '80s, uh, all the way through the late '80s. Uh, this Cold War with Russia, as he is 
putting down all these Russian insurgents uh, and, and talking about that, that Clark is, is saying, you know, we have to put them down and remind them that giants walk the earth. So now you're getting this giant Superman component in Dark Knight that didn't exist prior. But I got to tell you, for guys like me, I am I am thrilled. I am digging this. This is much more interesting to me than the Joker going on the um, on the talk show and gassing everybody on the Letterman show or whatever it is. And look, here's the deal. It's no it's no secret that 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 this ends up this this confrontation with Clark and Bruce ends up being the centerpiece of the fourth issue, the one that was so, so, so late, four months late, but worth every penny. Dick Giordano was quoted uh, in regards to Dark Knight's lateness, uh, being really unmoved by it and, and, and upsetting some people in, dark, in, in, in DC by, by not being more concerned about the deadlines on, on, uh, on Dark Knight. By his famous quote is, nobody ever picked up a comic book and said, after finishing it said, you know, that comic was really late. And he's right. And especially when you're thinking about a book that's going to be collected, as this has, and be a best-selling, uh, groundbreaking, transformational depiction, nobody in 1992, 96, 2001 has any concern whatsoever that the book was four months late on its original shipping schedule. But the gap in time does explain a lot of the shifts. And, and the other thing is, if you get the Dark Knight, um, there was a Dark Knight artist edition, and it shows through overlays. It, it, it reprints Frank's original line art in black and white, and you can see how much of the fourth issue Frank inked, re-inked over what Klaus inked over him. A lot of it is Superman, uh, full full splash pages of Superman, um, faces of... Uh, of, of Bruce Wayne, of Robin, I mean, and Frank really was changing the way his art was depicted. But long story short, Dark Knight is this amazing, ambitious vision of, again, we talked about World's Finest was canceled. There was no more World's Finest. And now the World's Finest are squaring off against each other, threatening each other, super... The idea that Superman would tell Batman, don't make me put you down, and Batman would say, I'd like to see you try, was uh, like one for the ages. Redefined, my friends oh, and you I definitely discussed... weren't. You definitely weren't seeing that in, in, in the Saturday morning Super Friends. Yes. I mean, you know, I mean, where Batman was always subservient to, to you know, uh, you know Superman, who's like the leader of the, the Super Friends, the leader of the Justice League. My, my friends and I would discuss that scene, the horse riding scene, the threats and everything that was implied for months to come. And then obviously the big battle where, as you said early on, the focus in Frank Miller's Batman was more about him as the strategist, as the tactician, and the fact that he goes and gets Oliver Queen, Green Arrow, whose arm has been ripped off, presumably by Superman, implied Superman took Ollie's arm in some sort of incident. And uh, that he fires a kryptonite arrow that weakens Superman that sets up for Batman to come in with his, again, suit of armor. Now Batman is wearing a suit of armor. Uh, he has clearly stepped into the Iron Man kind of vein in this series for the first time. A super suit, uh, uh, the giant super tank, and he beats the snot out of Superman. And it's so entertaining, and it was so mind-blowing, and it was so Frank Miller. And... 
So I want to speak... And this has to be one of the first memorable times where you see Batman kick the crap out of Superman. And it seems like that that's like a... You know, I mean, they've done it in Hush, and they've done it in all these... I mean, like, like umpteen times, I mean, since then. You know, like, oh, yeah, hey, you know, Superman. But it's like, at the time, man, you know, Batman kicking Superman's ass, that was a big deal, man. That is, you know, that is, you know, on par with, you know... You know, uh, you know, you know, Ali taking down uh, George Foreman, I guess. I mean, you know, you yeah, never, you know, it's like if you're betting on it, you would never bet that Batman would be able to, to go toe to toe, let alone, you know, best him. World's finest always established that these two guys had this huge respect, love and adoration for each other. So, yes, the, this dirty street fight where literally Bruce in his armored form is stepping on Clark's face is... A giant shift in that dynamic and sets up and I know a couple of my really prudish traditional friends did not like that what happens here and we're going to get to it about the influences that Dark Knight had and Watchmen had but I want to pause and go back to the Xeroxes being passed out by Jeanette Kahn publisher of DC Comics as I said her adoration of Watchmen was well known to everyone and she was flying out Joel Silver was one of the biggest producers in Hollywood at the time the Lethal Weapon movies Predator Die Hard she was trying to get him and eventually did get him to sign on to sponsor and produce a Watchmen uh, series but she would talk and write openly about how she would be reading the manuscripts on the way from flights between New York and LA but so, so her enthusiasm in passing these out I'll tell you when I got hired in 87 and I visited the DC offices, the new version of the X-Men, uh, sorry, the X-Men, the new version of the Watchmen that was generating all the interest was uh, the killing joke. And I have spoke of how I was handed the entire job in 11 by 17, Brian Boland's entire uh, illustrated uh, pages based on Alan Moore's story. There's no lettering on them yet, just just the line art. And everyone, oh, don't you want these? Don't you want these? And I always thought it was weird because it was months before the book was getting printed. And, you know, but 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 I flew back and handed them to one of my best friends who I knew would just be so thrilled. I said, hey, buddy, I've got killing joke for you. I've got no way. Well, also, when you were in New York City and 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 the Western, the West Coast does not, the comic comics don't pivot to the power of the West Coast and the influence of the West Coast for a few more years. New York is the epicenter of comics publishing, of publishing period. You would hear stories of, you know, the talent coming in and out of the doors. Look, my very first visit to Marvel Comics, up to have my personal, you know, I've already done DC a couple years prior. Now Marvel's flying me out to meet with them. I am huddling with Walt Simonson in the hallway. I am talking to Chris Claremont in the hallway. People who lived in the city, as so many of these people did, or if they took the train in from Connecticut or wherever they were, they spent the day there. They they made sure that they extended it into a dinner, into drinks. So you were it was always bustling. What was Walt Simonson delivering? He was delivering some issue of X Factor, his latest project. Chris Claremont was openly talking about how he was creating this character called Gambit when I was sitting there. I mean, stuff was happening. And if you happen to be there and look through the drawers, there's all manner of things that you could get access to. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, there's an artist who I won't discuss right now, but um, 
that during the time uh, of Barry Windsor Smith's Weapon X, before Marvel Comics Presents did the serialization of Barry Windsor Smith's Weapon X, there were artists going into the office, seeing them firsthand, and then running into their books and implementing what Barry was starting was was going to do before Barry could get to it. Now they couldn't execute it in anywhere near the same way Barry could, but that is the trap that you can fall into by letting pages be public consumption. And 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 also when I was there, I would like flip through, oh, hey, man, look at this Dale Keown Hulk. I'm looking at the whole new issue. This is when I was back in, the, in, in, in like 90. And, and it is fun. It's tremendous fun. But if you live in the city and you're able to get in every day and see stuff and you know that you can jump a deadline, that's a tremendous advantage you have. And there is no doubt that what John Byrne asserts that these this Superman is government stooge and the outlawed superheroes green arrow he had his arm ripped off by superman this is dark i mean it's dark it's 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 fairly grim but it also kind of nudges it closer to watchmen did you see oh, there's also did you see I mean, the, also, did you see the comparisons oh I, absolutely well i mean like like independently no i didn't i mean but now putting you know connecting the dots absolutely it's there i mean also i mean the fact that you know, Selena Kyle is, you know, is Catwoman. She's a, you know, she's the madam prostitute, um, you know, in here. I mean, all that stuff felt very much, you know, and she's lassoed up and things like that. It seems very much, it seemed a lot more Alan Moore Watchmen than it did, you know, the first issue of uh, Dark Knight. At least it did to me. So Watchmen, as I said, is more of a murder mystery that drops all these great clues that 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 weaves together this giant, you know, towards this giant finale, which is fantastic that one of the Watchmen's own is the guy that was taking them all down. Now, I will tell you, there was a huge gap also between Watchmen 11 and 12. This is still me at the comic store clerking, and uh, I will 100 percent full disclosure of the time, retailers who were there, people hated the original ending of Watchmen. They hated the giant squid, the alien projection by Ozymandias. Um, it was not something that people were like, oh man, this is exactly what I was hoping for. It was like, I'm not sure how I feel about this or I just don't like this, but the rest of the series was good. And it, it now, was- Now, would you say, would, would you say it was like, a, I mean, was it as controversial as like, the ending of Lost or something like that? Yes, it was, it was a, it, it, look, Game of Thrones, Lost, you name it. We are in the era of kind of these unfulfilled finales where, you know, the ones that don't stick the landing uh, are, are, are the ones that people crow about. And, and Watchmen, it wasn't enough to sour people on the whole series because people loved the journey, but the ending came and it was weird and it gave the reset of, but we need to unite. I've always, it's very controversial, but I like Zack Snyder's solution to this. But then we are going to pivot to the Watchmen series here in a minute, which was more mind-blowing to me than the original, even though obviously you need the original because that's pretty heady stuff to try and, um, you know, oh, sequelize. But I'm not going there. Yeah, I, I don't want to really go there as yet. It's just... The ending of Watchmen, um, which would be, I think, 
I think the HBO series helped the ending of Watchmen for everybody who never really was sold on the big squid. But so these these books, uh, I, I, I'm obviously much more focused on Dark Knight because I believe Dark Knight was the bigger influence because it was easier to bite off Dark Knight. And you're like, Leifold, what are you talking about? I'm talking about one year later, I go to WonderCon. I'm in the business now, uh, 87, 88. I'm, I'm, I'm in the business, and I see that Art Adams is drawing a action comics annual with Superman and Batman and a vampire girl. And Art Adams has completely transformed his style. His long, lanky uh, figures with extra long legs and super high waists have been completely transformed. Everyone is the thick, uh, dark knight uh, uh, proportions. They're all Superman's Everybody's jaw really wide. Everybody's really wide. Superman's jaw is thick. Batman's jaw is thick. Their shoulders, they're broader. And I'm looking through these pencil pages, and I'm I'm totally digging them because Art Adams is now filtering Frank Miller, and it's exciting. And I say, I said, are, are you doing Frank Miller? And Art goes, I loved what he did. I had to implement it immediately. Full, you know. I mean, look, as artists, because we're visual, you're going to see if we're adopting. Barry Windsor Smith's entire rendering scheme on top of our line work when we didn't do that the week, the month, the day before. Suddenly you go, oh, hey, that's that guy's doing Barry Windsor Smith now. Art Adams completely owned that I am completely, in his words, digging Frank Miller, and it is immediately affecting how I draw. Art Adams was one of the most popular guys in the business, and now he is completely drawing differently because that is the Frank Miller effect. I saw all manner of effects on Frank's storytelling, his art, but we obviously both Alan Moore and Frank were seen as the, you know, the 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 forebears of the new grim and gritty, the new grim and gritty, right, Jimmy? I mean, now 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 everything needed to be a tad darker, and or and could be maybe you know the best part is it could be. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it gave it, I definitely think it gave it permission to, but it's, it was also, it's like, you know, if there was any, you know, you know, any relationships or any, any darkness that was implied now it becomes straight out explicit. It's out there on front street. It's not whispered in between the panels. And I'll give you an example. Like, uh, you know, I, I recently reread, uh, uh, the dark Phoenix saga and I'm like, man, there's all, you know, there's a lot of kinky stuff going on here. There's a lot of adult stuff going on here. Whereas, you know, you know, filtered through, uh, you know, through a mind of a, you know, you know, a, a tweener, you know, it didn't necessarily have to have that, that element. We're now in the post dark night, post Watchmen era. I mean, they, it's, it's, it's put on front street that, um, you know, I mean, you know, any level of violence, any level of, of you know neurosis is out there any level of kink that is out there i mean you name it it's like you know it's like you can now insert it um because they made you know frank miller made the world you know safe to be violent i guess for you know for you know for for different creators out there and i mean you would see it over and over and over again i mean and I, I think it's a level that you know you can't put the toothpaste you know back in the in the tube at that point that's right, Melvin Gibson. That is that is a that is a uh, 
That is a reference to Melvin Gibson, who after getting in trouble with the law, I think it was with Diane Sawyer, said, you can't, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. And, yeah. it, and honestly, it, it's such a great quote. Um, it, 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 it is such an, a great quote. It, 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 it really sums up, I think, what happened with these comics. And I think to go further, you know, the authors of the, uh, the, the Batman books at the time, one of them was Max Allen Collins, who had been doing a detective comic called Ms. Tree. Ms. Tree. Ms. Tree. And he was doing Batman while Dark Knight was coming out. And he's the one who gave the famous interview, I think, to Amazing Heroes about how he was going to focus on the detective aspects of Batman. Well, suffice to say, after Dark Knight, people weren't interested in that. That's not the direction they wanted to go. And our good friend, visionary Jim Starlin, would come on the book. KG Beast, Death of Robin, all this stuff would start pouring out. Batman became more violent, became darker, became grim, became grittier. Mike Zek... Doing all the covers. Again, what are we talking about here? Batman is now portrayed thicker, uh, broader. His proportions changed uh, for the foresee. I mean, from that point on, uh, Batman has been irrevocably changed. For me, it's for the better. This is the Batman I dig. Uh, this is the Batman that you see in the Christopher Nolan movies. It seems like artistically, I mean, in or visually, it seems like that there's a lot more black that's that, that's you know that's that's put that's put on the page, um, or colored. You know, it's colored. It's even colored darker. You know, I mean, the style is darker. I mean, it's like no longer like everything is like light gray and, and baby blue. You know that you know that is you know that's very much from from you know the Alex Toth Super Friends you know cartoons. It's like you know the hues of the of the you know the you know, the coloring, the palette, you know, just became darker. The, you know, the, you know, there's just more, there's more blacks on the page, you know, yes. rather than this, this, again, this, this gray and baby blue. The, uh, the anti of violence was upped the, the, you know, I, I know grim and gritty that that phrase just turns people off, but it's, you, you can't get an easier kind of, you know, explanation for how things turn, but, but, um, you know, all of the Batman titles going forward just had this um, tougher uh, Batman. Uh, Batman was depicted in Cosmic Odyssey by Jim Starlin and uh, Mike Mignola, and he is much more Frank's vision of the character, battling, you know, uh, uh, aliens from Apocalypse in the sewers of Gotham and these having these violent, you know, uh, encounters again he just became this look the dark knight is who batman became and i believe he is and remains the dark knight right now as i said the christopher nolan movies with the gadgets with with uh more of an emphasis on like you said the uh, like we mentioned the, the iron man bend um different suits the tanks the planes that the really leaning into the billionaire stuff now nolan did a lot of great original I think Batman Begins is my favorite of all the Batman movies. I love the Reza's Ghoul aspect, Liam Neeson, the training that he put his own spin on it. But by the time we obviously get to Dark Knight and uh, and, and and the Bane film, uh, I feel like Christopher Nolan is really he is definitely flexing his Frank Miller influence. I think Zack Snyder obviously has a ton of the Frank Miller influence in his depiction. Ben Affleck looks like Frank Miller drew him. Uh, 
I mean, Jimmy, this is literally 30, you know, 30 plus years going that, that no one has superseded Frank's vision. Look, I love and they Kobo. haven't, and they haven't, and they haven't gotten better than Frank. And it's like they haven't done anything different than Frank. They've just done a, their own version. It's like, man, this is great. So, I mean, it feels like a, okay, you met, you mentioned concerts earlier, you know, the, the Eagles. It feels like, okay, it's like Frank Miller put together this killer playlist, right? And, uh, you know, with, you know, with, you know, dropping all the, all the, all the greatest hits. And now it just seems like everybody else is almost a cover band of Frank Miller. You know, it's like they're 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 trying to play the same hits. They're trying to play the same songs, but it just comes up. A lot of times, it just comes up short. It feels like it's they're doing it. They're all cover bands of Frank Miller. So I said on a recent uh, uh, podcast, and I really believe it, that Neil Adams, when he drew and depicted the character, everyone else was playing for second place. Uh, I, I have not. No one has supplanted Neil Adams Superman in my mind uh, since I saw it as a kid in 1975-76. And then Neil's Superman only became more prominent with the more projects that he did, like Superman Muhammad Ali, the, the calendars, the posters, T-shirts, all the ads that he was hired to draw Superman in. He was the uh, and 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 I say this as our readers may not know this, Neil, our listeners may not know this. Neil Adams, the only time he ever did an interior Superman story was Superman Muhammad Ali. Otherwise, the way you knew him was covers all the different various covers that he depicted Superman on, the licensing. In the same way, I, you know, Neil's Batman is also hugely transformational. But if you look at, for instance, Jim Lee's first issue of Hush, uh, the Batman that he is depicting, he actually kind of goes in reverse. By the 12th issue of Hush, he has leaned out Batman and brought him back to that athletic build that he was uh, portrayed in for decades. But when Hush starts, Jim is 100%. Uh, when he's battling uh, Killer Croc in that issue, he is channeling Frank's proportions, the size, the breadth, the width, the thickness, which, again, was not there until Dark Knight. It did not exist. It was not a thing until Frank made it a thing. And to have something be a thing for as long as he's had it be a thing, when I see so many of Capullo's depictions, they are so influenced by Frank. And that's not a that's not a... You know, it's not a diss. It's it's how powerful Frank's depiction of Batman has been in that we've already mentioned five to six films, numerous cartoons. I mean, obviously, there's been animated, acclaimed animated adaptations of Dark Knight now, multiple sequels to it. DC has cashed all sorts of checks going back to the Dark Knight well. And other artists have absolutely implemented uh, when Joe Quesada did batman in sort of asriel uh that, that he was doing very much a frank miller version of the character and this is like you can't run or you can't hide from it um if i have depicted batman the few times i have i am working off of a frank miller base look also and i'll put this in my the show notes for the show on my desk are three i am are surrounded by dark knight statues not batman statues the replication of the cover to two that came out last year, one of the finest statues ever, a Dark Knight statue with him and Carrie, Katie Kelly, Carrie Kelly as Robin. is. And if Batman stood up from this statue, he would be 12 feet tall to Carrie Kelly's like four and a half feet tall. It is, the proportions are never more like evident here. And then I have a killer 
statue of uh, Batman standing over Frank's Joker out of a scene from issue three of Dark Knight. So, again, not a Batman fan, but very much, uh, you know, having Batman, Frank Miller's Batman is alive and well in my office. Batman Beyond, the version of Bruce Wayne depicted in Batman Beyond is the Dark Knight. He, he physically looks like Bruce Wayne in the Dark Knight Returns series. And it's cute that now he's guiding a young hotshot Batman. But the Bruce Wayne in there is very much uh, Frank's when when Alex Ross in Kingdom Come depicts Bruce Wayne. It is off Frank's model. He's even got him in armor almost full time as an extra nod. I mean, Jimmy, I, I, I got to be honest, man. I don't know that there's been a more resonant work than Dark Knight, but let's speak to the influences of Watchmen as we kind of head towards wrapping this up. What is, what are, what, what are the books that that Watchmen, you know, radically impacted in your mind? Well, you know, I mean, I think it spawned. I mean, between Alan doing that as well as Swamp Thing, then it seemed like like DC Comics is like fantastic. We're going to call everything Vertigo. Um, and that means that's it's like off off uh, off brand off kilter, um, you know line. But uh, Grant Morrison's uh, you know Doom Patrol felt like you know it was weird, but I mean it definitely has these, you know has these these ties. You know I think Warren Ellis you know going I think a lot of Warren Ellis's work definitely ties back to uh, what Alan Moore was doing, uh, you know earlier. So I mean I think that you're going to see a lot. Um, you know, between planetary and and uh, authority, I think are are going to see a lot of of you know uh, Watchmen references, you know, as well. And I think anytime that that it's it's a you know like let's do a um, you know let's do a serious or let's do edgy superhero team books. I mean, whether you even have stuff like Identity Crisis and Brad Meltzer, you know he you know he wanted to get, you know, dark and dirty with a, you know, Justice League murder mystery. Yes. And, you know, so, I mean, I think that, that, I mean, you don't just have to be, you know, from, um, you know, from, you know, you know, Northern Europe to, uh, you know, to, you know, to crib uh, uh, Alan Moore. But I mean, it just seems like, uh, it, it seems like the, the template is there, depending on how, you know, how edgy you want to, to get on the, on the edgy meter. You know, I mean, and I'm thinking of the Watchman clock of, you know, you know, one to 12, you know, how, you know, how, how edgy you're going to get. That's, you know, that's what the hands are going to depict. But um, I think that there's been so much, you know, so many, you know, Watchmen references all over the years, um, you know, that it's, you know, that it's, you know, it's, it's over and over and over. So, um, I mean, he became the, the edgy team book guy. And I think that's the legacy of Watchmen. Yeah, see, I, it's so weird because to me, uh, again, I, 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 the Brad Meltzer is the best direct comparison because, again, it's a, it's a murder mystery. It's not in any way, you know, uh, I, I want to be clear, Brad is, in my, in my opinion, as good, if not better, storyteller, author, uh, skilled, you know, writer than... Oh, I'm, I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge yeah. fan of, of I Identity want, Crisis. I, I just, and I, I just think they do... Clear that it's, in my mind the murder mystery is like, like very few murder mysteries are successful and, and look, they're hard to do because you know, it's, it's, it's uh it's a certain format. He pulled it off. I, 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 
it was violent. It was disturbing. So it had elements of, I think, like what, what we experienced in Watchmen. And again, it came out many years later. But, but what, what, it, what I'm trying to say is with with super teams, it's weird. I don't I don't think of another like Watchmen styled like I think of I think Rorschach. Look, do I think the question immediately followed? They were like, well, what if we did like a we couldn't let Alan do Rorschach, but maybe, you know, Denny and Dennis were attempting to to scratch the surface of some of that violence that Rorschach. I mean, come on, the guy's a trench coat. I mean, he, again, he's one of the more obvious echoes and was written as the question in Alan's, you know, outline. Oh, of, of course. I mean, and I think, you know, I, I think the shadow, the shadow came out right after that, that, that time. So it's like, let's do, you know, like, like super violent pulpy, you know, pulpy stories. I mean, like, you know, I mean, it, to me, that just seemed like, all right, like Watchmen was so big. How do we get more Watchmen? You know, how do we get more? So, so these, these two books we should point out are, are seen as the end of the Bronze Era. What the, the, the beginning of the Bronze Era is defined as Gwen Stacy dying. And when comics got mature, quote unquote, mature. And, and, and there's a lot of ground to cover between like, you know, 72 to, to 1986. But, but as you said, these books, Alan and Frank both gave a uh, disturbing violent grim uh dark uh very dystopian very dystopian views of the world and uh ironically alan moore would go on to write the foreword uh for the dark knight uh hardcovers which i think is funny and he gives copious praise because i also do believe oh do i believe that over in england alan was going holy crap this guy did what to daredevil there the transformation of daredevil cannot be underscored he was a cheesy character that people were struggling to take seriously don't take my word for it take the fact that it was dialed down to bi-monthly status there's your facts there's your data that goes okay so this book wasn't really the darling it wasn't being taken seriously frank turns it into a locomotive so much heat people go freak out daredevil is transformed do i believe young alan moore's like wow and then goes on swamp thing and and basically does the same thing completely different genre but equal to transformation and people blown away the buzz book of dc comics when swamp thing is being more talked about than superman and batman and again dick giordano was excited to transition frank to batman to this giant selling book which honestly if you were to tell me that dark knight has made uh a hundred million dollars for dc comics in the last 30 years that i would be well of course it has it has been that evergreen never seemingly out of print uh always in a new bold edition and as i've told you licensing uh, the action figures. I have action figures that are all boxed up. All the all those great Frank's Miller action figures that you and I oohed and awed over in the early 2000s. But also the other thing that people may not understand, pivoting against again the Watchmen. Watchmen was supposed to be a project that Alan owned. Part of the caveat of him not using the Charlton characters was that no, Alan, if you change this, if you change Blue Beetle to Owlman and Captain Adam to Doctor Manhattan, you own them. But it was based on when DC stopped publishing them or DC had to not publish them for a 
period of time. And our listeners should our listeners should know that absolutely a a huge bone of contention. What what infuriated Alan and kept him away from DC for all these years is that the reminder. Well, Alan, it, it only activates and becomes yours if we stop publishing it and we have published it in perpetuity and never intend to not publish it. But we should probably discuss the Watchmen show in as we wrap up as really, I mean, it, it was ballsy. When, when, when it was announced, we all wondered what it would be, right? We all speculated. Oh, I, I didn't know if it was going to be, at the time, I didn't know if it was going to be like the before Watchmen stories. I didn't know if it was going to be, you know, a sequel to the movie. I didn't know if it was going to be, you know, um, uh, you know, the silhouette and 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 the owl, you know, you know, going on further adventures, you know, which they, you know, kind of imply at the end of the end of the Alan Moore, you know, story. So it's like, you know, so there was a big, you know, so there was a big, you know, question mark. And I actually kind of stayed away from from a lot of the pre-hype of the of the TV show because you know I mean Lindelof Lindelof came off of Lost I mean so it's like you know there's Lost and Leftovers and I mean some really cool TV shows but I'm like I wonder how he's going to do and Watchmen has a very hard um Watchmen has a very hard um uh you know history of sticking the landing so it was going to be really interesting to see what he was going to do with a limited number of episodes, what characters he was going to do. And I, I try to go in with as much of a, a open mind as possible. And I mean, I, I got to tell you, I was blown away because the thing that seemed most in common between the HBO Watchmen and the, uh, the original graphic novel is the amount of time that Alan Moore created and, and Dave Gibbons created this, this layer. I mean, the social commentary and, you know, what if this happened in, in life? How would it, you know, how would it, how would it affect society? And I mean, and they took that, I mean, so much further than, you know, than, than I ever expected. And not only did it take it so much further into the future, but also, I mean, they, you know, they, they grounded this and, you know, so far in the past. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was definitely ambitious and, and, and I, I think it hit it, it hit it, its marks. Uh, definitely. I mean, so, so, so I mean, I know that there, you mentioned Dave Gibbons and I have been remiss a hundred percent this entire time to not, uh, at once even mention his name. He is 50. I mean, probably more I, I obviously as a comic book artist alan grinds his artist that doesn't mean that alan does any harm to his artist what that means is alan tasks his artist with a ton of uh detail and references and very specific full script direction and for dave gibbons th this guy knocked watchman out of the park and and one of the reasons watchman was not as visually impactful as dark Knight. i'm going to lay it out to you right now it's because it's 12 panel grids eight panel grids it's so much work the brilliance of it is that you know the artist just dove into each page delivered these ground break ground breaking detail in his storytelling and format and 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 the grid 
and I mean very meticulous detail that artists don't really want to do most of the time. We want to do Dark Knight, big splash pages of Batman jumping over buildings in the night sky with Carrie Kelly um, standing over the dead body of a mutant in the mud, giant, uh, drawing a super giant vehicle called the Batmobile, having Superman and Batman kick each other in the face and pile on each other in giant splash panels. That is the that that is the visual language that attracts all sorts of more than attracts it inspires artists. What Dave Gibbons does is it, he's this giant problem solver. He to tell this superhero murder mystery he had to puzzle piece everything that Alan was asking for above and beyond delivers this masterwork but that's why uh Watchmen was more difficult in terms of to inspire and to and and to to duplicate because I think people went that's a lot of work whereas Frank says this is a rip roaring good time they both accomplished very similar goals but to the to the to the TV show I'm going to tell you Jimmy as the clerk that watched Watchmen happen and then as you well know as you transitioned from buyer of comics to you know retailer of comics for 30 plus years Watchmen was Alan Moore's domain and Alan Moore's domain alone you did not mess with it unless he was associated with it and he wasn't doing anything more with it and then Dan DiDio the publisher of DC decided uh, I think in 2011 2012 to do before Watchmen um I would be lying to tell you that I picked a single one of those up. I did not read a single issue of that. I did not interact with them. I probably would have read Darwin Cook's It's Nothing Against the Project. I just didn't have time. It, uh, someday I'll sit down. I'll, I'll, I'll look through them. It wasn't certainly anything personal. I just literally would be lying to everyone here if I said that I interacted with even a piece of that stuff. So when the series was announced, we're going, is, is it based on before Watchmen, and, and again, you're, you're wondering, like, these books that I bought that I didn't read, or these books that people bought, are they going to pop? Is, is Lindelof going to take from this? And from setting it in Oklahoma City, to the introduction to Sister Night, to the offing of what who was believed to be the biggest star on the show in the first episode, the Don Johnson reveal, I mean, Lindelof, I feel like, kind of, out Alan Moore to Alan Moore and we are just a few months away from Watchmen having ended and because of the Oklahoma City and the Juneteenth stuff it, it's ahead of its time and seems like it's going to be impactful and around for a huge period of time I mean HBO made the whole series free Warner Brothers made the whole free series free for the last several days and I think for the next few days uh so, so you could sample it without you know buying one of their outlets so I mean what Lindelof accomplished and in integrating the older characters, uh, I, I got to be honest, I, I feel like Watchmen, the HBO series, is a tad smarter than the Alan Moore book. And I don't mean to, because there are ideas and concepts in the series that should not work. And he, you know, his reach did not exceed his grasp, right? I mean, I think Lindelof. Oh, I, you know what? I don't think, I don't think it's anything, I don't think it's anything wrong to say that Lindelof like out Alan out Alan Moore Alan Moore I mean because it's, I mean Alan Moore gave that really rich world but I mean t for him to go in the past and set up I mean set up the the you know the core of this 
with uh, with June with the Juneteenth and the the um, the you know with the the history of Tulsa. I mean, my wife and I we were talking about that today. It's like that was never mentioned in our in our history classes in you know growing up. And of course, what I ended up doing was I mean, because that blew my mind. You know, I googled it after after the show, watching it this last fall, and I mean to root kind of superhero culture um you know you know back that far on a different source you know than you know than what we're used to i think was just was mind-blowing and and uh i mean it really took it into you know so many more in different directions and further seeps you know how deeply rooted superheroes would affect everyday society and i think that was a lot of the core values of of watchmen and that's hard to pull off and I mean, and, and he accomplished that. So, so to in Dark Knight, we just gave it the longest podcast. I, I I don't believe I'll go this long ever again. It was worth it. Um, it, it the, these two books, like I said at the beginning, we had to climb these mountains, scale these Twin Peaks, because they are still impacting the culture today. They are in the conversation. They are resonant works, and I, we can't overhype it. When you show up and uh, tackle Batman, who had been fading from not just relevance, but popularity, fading in popularity, and reinvigorate him to the point where people 100% in the industry say that the 1989 Tim Burton movie does not happen without Dark Knight. Rolling Stone singing its praises. Frank Miller is an auteur on par with the greatest directors in Hollywood. This is the kind of stuff that was thrown out there. He impacted the way Batman has physically been portrayed for every day after Dark Knight uh, was published. I mean, it was it is a seminal, uh, transformative work in that everyone from Zack Snyder to 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 to, to Christopher Nolan to Christian Bale to Ben Affleck have invested in Frank's. Uh, Batman some decades later and Watchmen is just a great literary work and again the greatest thing to me that the show did was it really leaned in hard on the squids and made that entire thing better but we have uh, Jimmy and I we 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 could probably go a couple more hours but the the main points the influence of these books the effect of these books, and more importantly, and I am telling you, John Byrne has tremendous credibility when it comes to Frank Miller. These guys are best buds. They have been through the wars. That entire class is close in the way that my entire class is close. John Byrne, Walt Simonson, Frank Miller, George Perez, those guys are all pals in the way that Jim Lee, Todd McFarlane, myself, Mark Sylvester, Eric Larson are pals. And so when John says that it that that's why the shift happens, like I said, man, you're you're up there in those drawers. Those pages come in, and Frank sits down and goes, "Oh man, I'm inspired." And he had the framework given that he had, as you said, like a more dystopian Batman that he could immediately implement the government stooge aspect of the Watchmen and run with it. And and for me, it my favorite Dark Knight issues are three and four, not one and two. One and two were fun. They they got the ball rolling, but three and four just wow. Talk about spiking the ball. But Jimmy, well, and, and 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 to that extent, and to that extent, it's like I think you know one sticks the landing. You know a lot a lot 
a lot easier than the other one. So, I mean, you know, like both books are perennial sellers. I mean, you know, these books came out in, you know, 80, you know, 86. And, you know, here we're talking, you know, 25 years later, 30, excuse me, 35 years later, we're getting, um, those books are still bestsellers. I mean, they will go toe to toe with anything else, uh, you know, that we offer, like when we're at places like the San Diego Comic-Con, those books still continue to find an audience year in and year out. And you'd be surprised. There's a lot of people that go, you know, I think that Watchmen and Dark Knight are two books that should be on every comic, any like casual comic fan, pop culture fan, they should own those two books. Yeah. You know, so I, I think that's, that's, Jim that's, 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 that's he's got, he, he's got every possible edition. I'm not selling mine. I was smart enough to go visit Frank at one of his signings and get these bad boys signed. So good luck getting them out of my hands. Um, look, everybody, we went at it tonight. We, we picked apart, we did the autopsy on these books. Um, Obviously, Dark Knight, I, I think Jimmy and I will, would cop to the fact you can't listen to this podcast and not go, these guys favor Dark Knight. We do, for all the reasons I've said. Splashier, bolder, more transformative, uh, more fun. Dark Knight is, uh, Watchmen is a great trip, but I don't revisit it because it was a mystery. And once it was solved and I had all the pieces, but there are corners of Dark Knight and and those pages and and and, you know, uh, streets that if the, the ego, I wonder what happens down there. I wonder what what's over here. I wonder what's behind this. It, it, you know, from the the depiction of Alfred to Carrie Kelly as as the new Robin to Batman, you know, putting down Superman, Green Arrow's arm ripped off. Obviously, this stuff is is crazy, and it and it, it defined a new age, which would become the Image Age, which I keep teasing. But when we get there, hold on to your your seats baby cuz we're going to we're going to rock and roll but Jimmy thanks for joining us dude always awesome to jam with you uh Jimmy is on Jimmy tell tell people where they can catch you um real easy okay we put on um I put on the amazing comic conventions so you could find us on social media at amazing comic con um, and we put on live events in Las Vegas and Hawaii, uh, as well as some other tour stops throughout the country. Uh, and our retail business, um, where we sell books uh, at the other major shows, such as San Diego Comic-Con and WonderCon and things like that, it's at Amazing J Brothers. And that's our last name, J-A-Y. And it's all spelled out, so nothing funky. And you can find us on... Uh, Facebook, on Instagram, and Twitter on all of those handles. Fantastic. Jimmy, thank you for joining us. Everybody, um, I am on Instagram at Rob Liefeld. It's got a blue check to differentiate me from the phonies and, and, and the parodies. Go to Rob Liefeld, at Rob Liefeld, blue check on Twitter. I am at Robert Liefeld. I am all over social media. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for your input. Continue to uh, to to go through this ride with us. We are having a blast. Uh, these, this isn't, again, I want to reestablish. We don't do nostalgia here. We only do the stuff that is relevant and rocking uh, the, the world of pop culture and comics today and tonight. We deep dived it. Visit us next time. Very soon we will be back with new episodes of Rob Observations. Everybody take care of yourself. Be safe. Rock on. Talk to you on the next episode of Rob Observations. Thank <laughs> you.